All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. Hey, thank you. The one person who said good morning. (laughs) Well, welcome back to our study of Has American Christianity Failed? Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we left off right around page 6869. And what have we seen heretofore? Well, we have seen that, especially if you're, you know, if you're new to Lutheranism, if you're coming from American evangelicalism or some other form of American Christianity, maybe if it's been many years since you've taken your Lutheran faith seriously, you are finding that it goes much deeper than you thought. That it is, that sin is not merely a surface level problem, not even a flesh-deep problem, but it goes all the way down to the bones, to the very marrow of the bones. Um, this this diagnosis of, of our sickness, the scriptures describe as a sickness even unto death. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so nothing remains untainted, including our wills. And that's the most scandalous thing of all. Um, really scandalous to the flesh that is within us. But God's word says it is true. Even our wills are dead toward God, turned against him. So then if we are, in a sense, 100% dead, we need a 100% Savior who can 100% resurrect us and bring us back. And so as we analyze the depths of our sin and our sinful condition, that's one side of the coin, other side of the coin that's symmetrical with it is the depths of God's love, his astounding grace and mercy in Christ Jesus, and the full and complete forgiveness of sins we have on account of his cross, on account of his bloodshed for us. And that is the other side of the coin, which we're not quite ready to flip over and examine that other side yet, but it's coming. And that's the point of all of this. So just to simply summarize where we've been as of late, on page 68, if you look at the second full paragraph, just that first line, far from having a free will to choose or make a decision for Jesus, the scriptures speak of the natural condition of man as an enemy of God. And I'll just bring to mind that there are a a plethora of scriptures below that statement and above that statement in the text. Even on the preceding page, the textual quotes begin in page 67 toward the bottom. Um, There are many, many scriptures that demonstrate this point. Bottom of 68, we'll start into the new section, the depth of your sin and the dying of Jesus. In this chapter, Wolfmuller writes, we have explored the depth of our sin. We have heard the voice of the law expose our wretchedness, our humility, and our death. We have heard the thunderclap of the law, which flattens us. It empties us of all pride 
and any faith in our goodness and ourselves. There is one last word of law that we need to hear, and it is surprisingly the word of the cross. The pages of the Old Testament are full of sacrifices. Every day animals were brought to the temple, their blood drained and their bodies burned as a constant reminder of the people's sin and as a constant reminder of the Lord's mercy. When the Israelites took a lamb to the altar, they saw the Lord accepting the death of another in their place. They knew they were sinners, and they should be punished for their sin. The sinner should be on the altar, with blood spilled and body burning. But the Lord had arranged a substitute. This is the theology of the sacrifice, a preaching of the law and the gospel. It showed the punishment that the people deserved but did not receive. This preaching of the altar comes into its fullness in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Behold, preached John the Baptist from his river pulpit, pointing at Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The cross is the full and final sacrifice offered for sinners. Jesus on the cross receive the punishment we deserve. Jesus on the cross took our place under God's wrath. Theologically, this is called the substitutionary atonement. Jesus was our substitute, our replacement, our blessed stand-in. Now, quoting from Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All right. Well, a provocative point. Of course, the ultimate thesis and point is that in the cross of Jesus itself, we find both law and gospel. You can look at the cross and say, that is what I deserve. I think this might be one of the reasons why so many in American Christianity are averse to the crucifix, prefer an open cross. I don't want to be reminded of the true nature of my sin. I don't want to be reminded of the true justice of God. I don't want to be reminded that his wrath is in fact perfectly good. I would rather go to church and be made to feel good about myself, and a gigantic crucifix hanging front and center precludes that. <laughs> now, secondary to that, of course, is if I'm unwilling to take my sins so seriously, I'm unwilling to take my Savior so seriously, and so a good amount of the scandal of the crucifix is simply that we don't want to acknowledge that that cost was in fact paid for us by another. There's too much nation pride within us that says, well, God opened the door, but I'll walk through. God made it possible in Christ, thank you, but I've got it from here. And that pride then despises, really properly speaking, the gospel, the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. Why, it can't be that easy, it can't be that free. If that were true, 
anyone could get in. And I'm clearly above average, so can understand why I would get in, but not all these others. So the law, the law is a, or excuse me, the cross is, can function as the law and can offer a great smackdown to both our tendency to take sin too lightly and our nation inherent spiritual pride whereby we don't want to be rescued by so great of a savior. All right? So we can examine that um, in light of the Old Testament scriptures, as Wolf Mueller shows us, where they had the sacrifice, daily sacrifices and other sacrifices, I mean, just blood sacrifices everywhere, atoning sacrifices everywhere, a perfect reminder of two things. God's wrath over sin and his, his justice over sin, and we are sinners, that's the first thing. And then the second thing, that he has mercy. And that through this shedding of the blood of an innocent, there is forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins is full and free. And so that's the other side of the coin. Now, the whole Old Testament then from the, uh, from Mount Sinai and Moses all the way forward drives home this point up into the cross. We might also even include the Lord's Supper in this because the Lord's Supper is, um, you know, this is an interesting kind of detail, but a very important one. The pastor doesn't, doesn't simply say, here's Jesus for you. No, it's the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. When, when are body and blood separated into two different things? Only in a sacrifice, in a death. So to receive the body of Christ and then the blood of Christ as two separate actions is to receive the sacrifice of Jesus. Now that is a sacrifice made once and for all on his cross, but then that sacrifice comes present tense temporally for each one of us to receive that very sacrifice. Okay, so then even in Holy Communion we see that our sin is so great it requires such a great remedy to receive by mouth the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus that we might be cleansed from all our sins. So even in the Lord's Supper, we can discern this element of law and the corresponding element of God's grace. This is what it cost, law, but I paid it because of my great love for you and your sins are truly forgiven. Gospel. Make sense? We can see that, by the way, in all the sacraments. I mean, sometimes people say, I think it's rather just clumsily put and somewhat mistaken um, that, that the sacraments are immediately and always gospel. I mean, look at baptism. Baptism is being buried with Christ in a death like his. That's law. And then being raised with him to walk, even now, in newness of life, awaiting the bodily resurrection. That's gospel. In receiving the Lord's Supper, we're receiving the body and blood of Christ separated. We're receiving the sacrifice, the death of an innocent for us, law. And yet it is for us that by these very things we might be cleansed and declared righteous and forgiven in God's sight. Gospel. Okay, 
So we can see that these themes then weave themselves all the way through the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, through the sacramentology, and at the heart and center of this particular meditation is the substitutionary atonement, also sometimes called the vicarious atonement. I prefer that language myself. I don't really have a great reason for that. It's just what I'm accustomed to. Um, but vicarious means the same thing, Christ in our place. All right, any thoughts or questions you have on on this statement, kind of the pinnacle of this of this chapter. Um, all good. All right. Fair enough. Let's um let's jump over to page seventy then. And here once more, Wolfmuller is going to kind of drive home these points. I'm going to give him the last word, though, of this chapter. A chapter predominantly on law, a chapter predominantly in diagnosing our sinful condition, and yet we see already the other side of the coin in the grace and mercy. So, uh, that great big that great big font, about uh, one-third down the page, when we see Jesus on the cross, we see what we deserve. It should be me chained to a pole, whipped by a Roman soldier. It should be me, blindfolded, spit upon, slapped, crowned with thorns, and mocked. It should be me, stripped, nailed hand and foot to a beam, and lifted up to scorn and mockery. It should be me, drowning in pain and sorrow. It should be me, hanging in the darkness, forsaken by God, smitten by Him, afflicted, suffering God's anger the object of his holy wrath. It should be me writhing on the cross, gasping for air. It should be me inflicted with God's anger forever in hell. That punishment should be mine, and it should be yours. That is how bad we are. If hell does not seem like fair punishment, then we do not yet know the depth of our sin. Boy, that bears repeating, doesn't it? Because what's happened to the preaching of hell? No one preaches hell anymore. Why? Because there's a scandal. There's a sense of, ah, it's far more than we deserve. It's really over the top. All that fire and brimstone stuff. Well, if hell does not seem like fair punishment, then we do not yet know the depth of our sin. By the way, as a side note, guess who, in all of the scriptures, speaks more about hell than anyone else? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, primarily because he doesn't want us to go there. <laughs> but is he shy about it at all? No, not in the least. That's just completely with a good conscience. Jesus is then, if you want to use this cliche kind of terminology, Jesus is the most fire and hell, what is it? brimstone, <laughs> yeah, fire and brimstone uh, preacher in the scriptures. He's also the most gracious and merciful in the scriptures. He does this without any scandal whatsoever, without any softening of it whatsoever. It is, in fact, what we deserve. And if we can't reckon with that, we won't receive him for who he is. We won't understand his cross for what it is. We won't love him as he loves us. So all of these things cohere and hold together. 
If hell does not seem like fair punishment, then we do not yet know the depth of our sin. If the cross seems like excessive punishment, then we do not yet know the depth of our sin. Just jumping over to the top of 71, Wolf Mueller continues, On the cross we see at last the profound depth of God's anger at sin. On the cross we see the full manifestation of God's wrath. On the cross we see what we have earned and deserved. We see the wages of sin. And on the cross we see Jesus. He is nailed there in your place. At the precise moment, the fullness of God's wrath is revealed. The fullness of his love also shines forth. You know, and that is the mystery and majesty of the cross. It's where the mystery and the majesty of the cross, we can never preach it thoroughly enough. We can never exhaust it. We can never stop marveling at it. At the precise moment, the fullness of God's wrath is revealed. The fullness of, God, of his love also shines forth. This is one of the most beautiful and profound mysteries of the cross. It shows God's wrath, but at the same time, it shows his mercy. Again, to use that, to use that Lutheran terminology, in the cross is law as condemnation and gospel as Christ receiving that condemnation instead of us. It's law and gospel wed into one. And by the, by the way, that has its own mystery and profundity, but I don't want to go into that at this point. On the cross, the depth of your sin, Wolf Mueller writes, is matched with the height of his love. On the cross, your wickedness is revealed and forgiven. American Christianity is weak on sin, which means it is weak on God's deserved wrath, which means at last it is weak on the cross. And then we could add to that weak on the sacraments too, because that's the way in which the forgiveness of sins won on the cross is distributed. So now we, now I think we see the whole thing, don't we? We see the whole thing. And we see that all these, these ways that, um, that American Christianity has failed, revivalism, pietism, mysticism, enthusiasm. These are all, these are all symptoms of taking sin too lightly. And so what do we see in the sin, in, in, in the United States, in, in the, uh, American Christianity? We see these, these symptoms of taking the law too lightly, of sin as if it was nothing, these things crop up, revivalism, pietism, mysticism, enthusiasm, and they pop up in place of the true remedy to sin, the cross of Jesus, baptism for the forgiveness of sins, the absolution by which the forgiveness of sins is given, the Lord's Supper by which Christ gives us his true body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. You can now see the whole picture of how these things work and why the American landscape is the way it is. Okay, let's pause there. I see a comment. Please. Yeah, um, I, I agree with everything, and, uh, and uh, I, I think it's very profound. My, my question is, um, how, how capable are we of understanding the depth of our sin and the, and the magnitude of God's uh, grace and mercy? 
uh, it would be my point that we're, we're, you know, babes in the wood on this. I mean, we, I can't understand that. That's a great point, Bob. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I don't know if I want to beat myself up about this. <laughs> well, we can understand it only in so far as God's word causes us to understand it. You know, these things are counterintuitive. They're contrary to the fleshly mind that dwells within us. And so then we can co begin to comprehend them and believe them only in so far as God gives it through his word. Yeah. And of course, I mean, when we're approached with this truth of God's word, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, I mean, the sinner can always say, articulating his, his deadness beautifully, I don't believe that. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's no, there's no saving one who will not be saved. <laughs> and yet, and yet God pursues. And he pursues us first with the tr with this with this truth that we're worse than we think, and we're one hundred percent in need of a savior. And by no way, shape, or form are we ever able to help or contribute to that. Um, but these things are revealed to us by God's by God's word. And again, the the flip side of the coin is, insofar as you acknowledge what God tells you about yourself and your sin, even that, though that's bitter it's completely matched and overcome by the sweetness of what God tells you he is as your savior and as the one who forgives you your sins. Indeed, forgives them so profoundly that, as the scriptures say, he doesn't even reckon them against you. Now, it's such a beautiful idea, such a beautiful thought that God looks, looks at our sins and says, what sins? And the first place they've all been laid on Jesus. And the second place, this is my child clothed in the righteousness of Christ through baptism, repentant of anything that there is in agreement with me that it's sin, wishing he or she could be rid of it already, longing and pining to see me in heaven in the bliss of sinlessness and holiness. I'm not going to count their sins against them. You know, it's like if it's even by, by analogy, imperfect analogy. You've got a child, maybe a son or a daughter, and they're growing up in your house, and they're good kids. They're good kids. And they do something, you know, kind of minor. You just let it go. Because it's just, they don't, they don't need to be corrected on that. They're good kids. They already know. If you, if you said to them, hey, do you understand that that was bad? They'd say, yes, I'm sorry. Um, so God has this kind of graciousness. His love is so great, it simply covers a multitude of sins. They're forgiven formally in Christ, but... There's a sense in which relationally he just does not even reckon them against us. Incredible. So yeah, we can't even plumb the depths. And that's the fun and the joy, by the way, of preaching law and gospel, of, of exploring the scriptures in, in this way, every single divine service. You know, even, even though there are similar elements every week, you could say, well, here are some law elements, here are some gospel elements. It's endless in terms of the different angles, the depth, the profundity, the ways in which it's communicated by God. It's endless already. Yeah. I'm seeing two hands. Uh, there's the microphone, and then we'll get it back up to you. Please. Um, it's kind of what I was going to ask when I partake of the Lord's Supper. I'm mostly thankful, and it's gospel for me. So how mm -hmm. would I um, see it rightly? Well, you, I think you already are, but, um, so it's, so like the two questions I always teach our, our, um, confirmands and those who are younger who are preparing for, 
Holy Communion. What is it? It's the true body and blood of Christ. Why are you taking it? For the forgiveness of my sins. Now, implied in there already is that you've examined yourself and you know you're a sinner. And so you're going to receive the, the medicine, the forgiveness of sins. And so, I, you know, look, you don't have to go up there and beat yourself up every time you take it, but you acknowledge that the reason why I'm going up here and receiving the body and blood of Christ is because I need the forgiveness of sins. And, and so that's sufficient. And that's the essence of why we're going, right? Yeah, you don't need to do more than that. Uh, except, except I'm simply pointing out that, um, you know, what may not be immediately obvious to us because of, because familiarity kind of dulls our senses to what's really going on. It is worthwhile to slow down and realize what's going on, that you receive the body of Christ in one action and the blood of Christ in another. That's solely sacrificial language. If you go back to the Old Testament, you look at the instructions for how the sacrifices were to be done. The blood and the body are to be separated out, um, treated differently. Um, and so too, the, the body and blood of Christ are, in the sacrament, separated out, treated differently. One's eaten, the other is drank. Um, so, so you can see those law aspects and elements. If you want to meditate on that, you can say, this is, this is the way in which I'm saved and I could not be saved in any other way. And that, that is really a profoundly kind of humbling meditation. This is the medicine of immortality. Without this, I perish forever and justly. Again, that's kind of a, a meditation along the lines of the, of the law um, aspect of, if you will, of the Lord's Supper. Please. This might be an argument, you know. Ooh, strong. I'm ready for an argument. I didn't know. <laughs> just, okay, just it could be an argument, but it's probably not. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as a long Lutheran, I, I recognize the depravity of my sin. I do. But you just said God doesn't count it against us. Mm -hmm. So you might make the argument, well, then why do you have to recognize it? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. all I'm saying. Yeah, that, and that's a fair, that's a fair comeback, Alice. And, and so, um, this is a really helpful way of thinking about law and gospel. And, and it's really important how we apply it and to whom we're applying it. You know, I'm, if you're if you're talking to repentant sinners, which I was making the assumption that you all were, am oh, I wrong? I am. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> yeah, well, then it's completely fitting to tell you the good news that God does not even reckon your sins against you. Now, I think to your point, if you're talking to someone who's abusive of that grace and who's saying, "Hey, God doesn't even reckon it, reckon it against me," so I'm going to go on sinning. That the grace can sin. abound all the more. Then you're going to have a word of rebuke and you're going to have a different word you're going to say wait a minute wait a minute you're taking sin way too way too lightly here the the freedom christ gives us is not freedom to sin but for the freedom of the gospel so we we would change our tune when dealing with an with an unrepentant sinner someone who is just using the gospel as an excuse to sin we would change our tune there's this great thing that Luther does. I review it every so often. There's this great thing that Luther does in the, uh, hey, if I keep reviewing it often enough, maybe you'll remember it. That'd be, yeah, that'd be amazing. Um, but, but Luther, Luther says in his, his lectures on Galatians that the, the gospel doesn't belong to the flesh. You can't give the gospel to the flesh. The flesh is that old Adam within us who's like, hey, I want to go on sinning. And, and if you give the gospel, what's he say? Great. Blank check. Can sin as much as I want. That's why you don't give the flesh 
the gospel, which I think is your point. That you're yeah, making. and and I wasn't insinuating that, but oh, it, please. <laughs> but is it possible that as Lutherans we sometimes I know in my life I have where the sin just bears you down, and yes. then you recognize the salvation of Christ and you're yeah. thankful for it, but do we? count it too much against ourselves when Christ won't recognize it once we've asked forgiveness? And that might be a better question. Okay, um, so so let me make sure I understand this question correctly. Um, you, you, you know the depths of your sin. You've come to understand the depths of your sin. Uh, you, you've come to hear the gospel, but there's a sense in which you're you're afraid that the gospel cannot cover your sins. Your sins may be too great for God's grace. Some some kind of well, that's exactly is that well, fair enough. Uh, that's what I'm trying to get. Is that is that pushing it too far? Too far. Okay. But, but that's a fair point. Okay. Yeah. What we're talking about, and why I maybe pushed it to that extreme, is because in that extreme, it's easier to see and understand, and we would call that despair. That when one falls into despair, you believe that you might even you might even be able to. I mean, this is the dangerous thing about despair. So there's danger all the way. In case you can't tell, am I taking the law too like like too exclusively? Am I taking it too lightly? Am I abusing the gospel? Am I not understanding the gospel? Am I taking it too lightly? Yeah, yeah. So okay. So if you're realizing that there's literally danger all the way everywhere you turn. Right. Because we're at the heart and hub of what God is trying to do to us. And who's going to be there at every turn? Satan trying to manipulate that, poke holes in it, make it not work, make it ineffective in whatever way he can. All right. When we're dealing with the category of despair, um, again, we may need to attack that head on in extreme cases and say, look, it's a pride and an arrogance that you won't receive this forgiveness of sins one by one by Christ. And we might need to attack that head on. Um, in some instances, that would be the appropriate response. In other instances, it may be um, a, something like something so simple as pointing to the universal atonement. So you can take a person in that state, if they're in kind of a lighter aspect of that state, you might say to them, is Jesus Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of some people are the sins of the world. All the sins of the world. Well, if the sins of the world, are you in the world? Yeah, you are. Do you deny that he's taken away your sin? How can I? Do you call Christ a liar? Do you call the scriptures a liar? Is God a liar? Your sins have been removed from you by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And maybe that's sufficient. Or at least then you're going to identify like where, well, I'm not repentant enough or I'm not faithful enough or something like this. And it's and the, and we're going to see Wolf Mueller kind of treat that topic in the pages to come. But the answer is you're right. No one's ever faithful enough. No one's ever repentant enough. If we put our eyes on ourselves, we are going to find cause to doubt. So what do we need to do with our eyes? Set them on Jesus instead. Because of what he's done, because of what he said, we can be certain of our salvation. We can be saved then from a kind of despair, right? Where we think, I'm, I'm too great of a sin, sinner to be saved by God or something like that. Yeah, both sides of the coin. Please. As you say that, I, the one with the despair was Luther. I always remember him. 
Yeah, the Luther, Luther wrestled with despair, he right? Did. Right, under, particularly under the Roman Catholic system. Yeah. I mean, it should maybe even exclusively would be a better way to yeah. put it, under the Roman Catholic system. Um, and again, not to overanalyze that system, but piety in that system is being uncertain as to whether or not you're going to be saved. No thanks. Anyway, my comment was, you reminded us, it's so good to walk into the sanctuary and look at the crucifix and say, that's what I deserve and that's why I'm here. Yes, absolutely. I, I, fi I frankly find no greater teaching tool in the sanctuary, if, you're a, if you can at all, in, in any way have one, have one. I mean, there's nothing in the scriptures that say you must, of course, um, but... but Okay, so you so you can choose what's in the sanctuary. What do you choose, <laughs> and why? <laughs> Find something better, right? Find something better. So, granted, it's total freedom. Here's your here's your canvas. What are you going to put there? But this is really what I'm also making the argument for here. By the way, is the historic Christian Church, and obviously the historic Lutheran Church. Like you can do anything you want for your for your calendar. What do you want? The, the historic church, the Lutheran church says, we want a calendar that centers entirely around Jesus. The first half, his conception and birth, all the way up to his death, resurrection and ascension. The, the second half, all about his teaching, systematically going through his teaching. We want our calendar to be all about Jesus. What do you want your worship space to be, to look like? All about Jesus, Christ crucified, front and center, the altar, the body and blood, the baptismal font, the pulpit, the word. We want it to be all about Jesus. So that's, and this is really an important diagnostic question for us as American Christians. It's like, granted, you can do whatever you want with the space. You can do whatever you want with the time. You can do whatever you want with the sermon series. But what would you choose if you could? And that's and that answer is the historic Lutheran Church. Find something better than a calendar all about Jesus, a room all about Jesus, a sermon series, the the um, lectionaries all about Jesus. Find something better than that, and we'll probably be interested. Uh, but you're not going to, of course, because these things have been around for over a millennia in one form or another. Please. I was going to respond to what Alice was saying about you know, the despair and pride that we go through. And as I'm trying to formulate the experiences that I'm having in my life, I wish I could say I'm an engineer and I have a beautiful flow chart that's happening, but it's more like being stuck in a game of shoots and ladders mm -hmm. because, you know, the day you wake up and you go forward and you make it to the end of the day and you haven't engaged in whatever repetitive sin you're fighting then you're prideful and you slide all the way back to the beginning and you have to start. So it's, or you go through and you're so repentant that you're despairing, then you get back to the word and that brings you up. You climb up the ladder and then you do something where God says, Oh, that's too much. And then you come back down. So it's, I feel like I'm trapped in that game, mm -hmm. but it, that mm -hmm. visualization seems to work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you're articulating is a very common experience amongst Christians. I would, I, I would only maybe add this. And I think Wolf Miller makes a similar point a few pages in. Um, if that game itself becomes tiresome and tedious and a drain on your spirituality, put the game away. It's fine. It's fine. Because there's a thing that can happen even, even with us as Lutherans, like, okay, Am I repentant enough? Am I not repentant? Was this a sin? Was that not a sin? Have I received God's grace? Am I in a state of, and we can become, so, so this tendency, when it's taken to its extreme, is, uh, scrupulosity. 
And we can become overly scrupulous, overly um, introverted, introspective, spiritually speaking. And the answer to that is, stop it. <laughs> stop it. Put the game away. Set it aside. Put your eyes no longer on yourself, but on Jesus. And this, um, you know, we can even, like, because this is taking ourselves, this tendency is taking ourselves too seriously, um, we need to, we need to stop taking ourselves too seriously. We need to entrust ourselves to God. We need to realize too that Christianity, marathon, not a sprint. God in this sense is more patient with us than we are. When we get exasperated with the shoots and ladders, uh, we can say, Hey, that's me getting exhausted with myself. Put that away. God's in charge, right? God has mercy. God's more patient with me than I am. It's okay. I'm going to take a break from the game and I'm going to enjoy his grace and his mercy. Yeah. So healthy way of looking at that particular condition, if it does get to the point where you're feeling exhausted or weighed down from it. This is a compound question. Um, if you're then those that are in hell or then go to the lake of fire, do they ever come, uh, do they, ever feel forgiveness or do they ever come to a place that the sin is ever washed away or is it burning forever and yeah it's a good question chris and i really you know without kind of going on a whole discourse of of hell and the nature of it um i think that's probably the only way to do justice to your question so answer trying to answer that in a way that that doesn't do justice to it but still gives you an answer you know, Christ describes it as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he uses this language too, where the worm does not die. Now, what exactly that means is, you know, subject of a longer discourse. But suffice it to say, there is a permanent irreconciliation between creature and creator. Right? If you recall from our Sunday morning studies, the bliss of heaven, the chief bliss of heaven, the essence of paradise, isn't to be in a, in a wonderful place. It's to behold God. It's to be satisfied in God. Our souls were made for God. And we find our rest, as Augustine says, only when we rest in him. Now, imagine hell is the opposite of that as the worm never dying, as never being satisfied, as never being at peace, as never being fulfilled, because your soul was made for God, but you've chosen to be separated from Him. And if you're separated from the one who is who is life, then what do you have? Death. That's why it's eternal death in the Scriptures. If you're separated from the one who is light, what is it? Darkness. That's why the scriptures call it eternal darkness. Um, if you're separated from the one who gives you rest, what is it then? The worm never dies. You're constantly agitated and unsatisfied. So, um, whatever the nature of hell, that's the experience. And there, and, and it's, there also seems to be indication in scriptures that if those who knew the gospel and knew it richly and it was proclaimed to them and preached to them, maybe if they believed on it for a time and then fell away, um, that that hell becomes even worse in that sense because you knew it was right there. God could not have made it, you know, clearer to you. And so there's a great deal of regret that this thing was that God said all of these things to me, and I, out of the hardness of my heart, rejected and refused Him. And so there's this sense of regret that gets amplified there too. Please, sir. <clears throat> well, 
my question is more of a seeking a validation and, and pertaining to this subject that we're this book we're going through has American Christianity failed. Um, I'm here visiting my cousin, which, which I covet your prayers. Um, and but I my my history is such that I I've for many years been a, a part of a non-denominational church, and I believe that if anyone here were to attend that church, you would have fellowship there, and because they, the Lord Jesus Christ is is our Lord and Savior. But um, but having been in that congregation, something's been missing for myself, and uh, uh, through the pandemic when that started. Like that church, like so many others, closed for an undetermined period of time. And when it opened, I ended up right now. There is no Lutheran church in my uh, where I live in Georgia, but uh, there is a Presbyterian church. My point being, I think it's listening to your observation about the elements. I mean, the, the cross, the crucifix, the, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All those years in the non-denominational church. We don't. There is no symbols. You could be meeting in a converted warehouse, and it just there was something missing. Sure. And uh, uh, I'm not trying to uh, sink any poke any holes into the, those that church or the people or anything like that. But mm-hmm. but for me, I couldn't put my finger on what was missing until I started going to the Presbyterian Church. Now the Presbyterian Church is a step up. Because there's uh, there's an order of service more similar to what I'm experiencing here mm-hmm. that I didn't have in the non-denominational church, and that's what I've been seeking without knowing it because it was hence the fallen away. Uh, it's and I was an elder in the, uh, that non-denominational church, and one of the issues they're dealing with is uh, the disintegration of the. The structure of the church are questioning their same practices because they, for example, the youth are not uh, firm in their faith, but there's no structure there. It's missing. And, and I and so uh, there's more of that in that Presbyterian church. And then I come here and then you, there is this is more like Catholic light to me, <laughs> you know, and so, which is a good thing. I uh, so I just in the. Two weeks that I've been here, I, it's been uh, a, a blessing because uh, of exactly what I'm seeing. I don't understand all of it. I mean, I do and I don't. If you the uh, procedural, sure, sure. But I'm I'm with you, and it's answering a need uh, for. So I guess my validation in response to this particular subject that you're going through is, I, I, I without knowing it, I was looking for these answers, and I'm just now. I got Chris got me this book, so I'm going through it cat right. to catch up. So we did something right. Yeah. Well, I'm saying <laughs> I'm saying that you are doing something right. I, I'm yeah. here to val- ask for validation that because there is something to all that I'm seeing and doing with the the more formality of. I think it's you're doing more to answer the question that's covered in the subject of this book. Oh, that's great to hear. Well, I really thank you for that perspective and for your openness to kind of share your journey and, and where you're at. And yeah, I, I think, you know, what what is the purpose of this study? The purpose of this study isn't to congratulate ourselves as Lutherans on, you know, having these gifts or being quote unquote right or something. It's to open our own eyes to what we've, what we have, what we don't want to lose, maybe what we want to increase in our midst. 
Um, but then hopefully this message goes out too. I, you know, the idea is that all of American Christianity would be healed. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be amazing if all of American Christianity was healed and began to look more like historic, small c Catholic, uh, Christianity and, and together we, we had fellowship around the Lord and the things of the Lord once more. If we kind of, instead of doubling down on trying to look like the world in, in order to win the world and ending up getting converted to the world, <laughs> if we double down on being church as being a light set, uh, set in the open, a city set on a hill saying, we are church, we are different, we are distinct from the culture around. We're not changing in order, we're not changing to be like you in order to get you to be like us. We're who we are and we're seeking by the power of the Holy Spirit, by His Word and Sacraments, to convert you into a child of light, into a saint of God, to join us on this on this city in the hill, right? So thank you for those observations. Um, I see you a hand here. Ever since I first read this book about four years ago, my thought was it should be titled, Has American Christianity Failed to Tell the Whole Truth? Mm, mm. Because it goes so much deeper. Right. And the deeper you get, the more you want, and the deeper you get, and it's just wonderful. And that's what the Lutheran Church does, is it goes deeper. Ah, yeah, thank you for that. And that, uh, that is, um, you know, nothing unique to the Lutheran Church, save for when we keep the Word of God front and center and the things of God front and center, then, then through those things, He reveals to us just how infinitely mysterious and living they are. It's the living Word of God. And it is, um, it is deeper than we ever knew. And then even when we think we've plumbed the depths, we've only just begun. You know, we've only just begun. It's the beauty of the things of God. So simple that a, that a child can understand, so deep that you could study them for all eternity and continue to grow and learn and know. Please. Well, you know how much we appreciate this church. I mean, so much so that when they say, we should get out of California. <laughs> <laughs> he says, no, the church. <laughs> I think the same thing, Alice. I think I should get out of California, but how can I take everyone with me? Yeah. That's <laughs> and where it. are we going to go? If you could, we could have like a little compound. Maybe we could get on a boat and float over to someone. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we do that a few hundred years ago? Yeah, I right. Think we did. Yeah, yeah, we'll go the other way. <laughs> Here they we'll come. go back. <laughs> the Mayflower. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know, but... I mean, it's really hard. You know, I always talk about Lutheran, but it's really hard in this society to say, no, that's not who we are. This is who we are. And um, I know I've looked at issues, etc. What do you do when you're in another state or another place? How do you find that, that non-compromising um, liturgical setting that, that brings in the fullness of Christ. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would think if you go on issues, et cetera, you can find it, but now I don't even know that. Yeah, I think, um, I think that there's a, a really, a, a really tough answer, um, to that question. I've thought about this for years and years, and, and here's the really tough answer. We need to retrain our thinking to prioritizing church above all things. So if, if you have, if you have, uh, come to a place where you're awakened in your faith, you can find a short-term solution, but the long-term solution is to find a faithful church and move toward it. 
Um, the long-term solution in terms of making your plans for retirement and this sort of thing is don't think to yourself first and foremost, um, you know, where would I like to live or where's the cheapest place to live or what place has the, yeah, the nicest golf courses around it. But think to yourself, um, where is a faithful church where I could, that fits the, you know, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to say that there's a, fa or I'm going to say, okay, but this is the general area I want to live in for these reasons. Now, where is a faithful church? Now, I'm not going to live further than a few miles away from it because as I get older, it's going to be harder to drive, that kind of thing. So, you know, start to, we need to, we need to change that part in our own minds where it's like really, really prioritize that. And I mean, I, I know the pain of that as a 40 something myself is, um, and, and not that far from my thirties. It's like, maybe you have this, you have this awakening and you kind of go, okay, I need to take church more seriously, but church is 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour away. Well, I'm going to make that sacrifice. It's worth it. Nothing else, nothing else is, uh, is comparable. I'm going to make that sacrifice for myself, for my family. And then when time comes, I'm going to make plans to move to a place where I can attend church more easily and my children can attend more church, attend church more easily. That's, you know, I think that that's where we're going. That's where we're going. And another thing that the church is doing to respond, this is kind of the other side of the coin, but another thing the church is, is trying to do is, is simply realize that, um, this idea of having a pastor who serves multi-points. They're already doing this throughout the Midwest, these multi-point parishes, just saying, hey, the pastor's going to travel here and here and here. You know, that kind of thing can take place in a suburban or urban setting as well, um, where you've got a group of Christians that kind of geographically can can come together here and another here and another here, and, and maybe that pastor in that church adapts its strategy to be able to reach those different people in those different locales. So... Um, that's kind of what's going on in the minds of pastors and church leaders on the other side of that coin, trying to address that issue. No, you can't go. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, that's the that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, we've got some things we have to work on on the church on the church level, and I don't mean we here at Faith Lutheran Church. I mean corporately in the LCMS. This is one of our weaknesses. Is we've got um, we really have not we've allowed worship wars to divide us. We've allowed church growth and missionalism, quote-unquote, to divide us. Um, we, we've, And by divide us, it's like if I walk into your church on a Sunday morning or my parishioner does and it's not recognizable to what faith does, in what sense is there continuity? In what sense, let me be really crass, in what sense is there branding such that one person would recognize um, that these two churches are in are somehow in fellowship together? So as we, as we press through these things and seek a greater unity, those barriers that we've created disintegrate, and then there's a willingness to partner. There's a willingness to say, hey, well, what really is the difference between this church and the church 20 minutes up the road and the other church, and why couldn't we all be unified in sharing our resources, um, pastoral and otherwise? Why couldn't we have this multi-pronged approach to spreading the gospel? Which would strike me as true missionalism, united together and, and truly then sharing our resources, uh, drawing people into the one church that is obviously recognizable. You know, whether you're at church A, B, or C, you go, hey, it's not that different. 
And that's the vision, that's the vision I think many of us have for the future. Frankly, this isn't a new thing though. This is the vision of Walther and the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, why we were even started in the first place. This was the vision of the Lutheran reformers. It's why they went to even, even to such extremes as mandating regionally, you will do page 168, or you will do page 15. Um, you will wear, the, our pastors in this area will wear these vestments. We will sing these songs and no other. Why did they make these mandates? Precisely for the gospel. So that everyone would be unified and on the same team and approaching this thing together. So we have a long history in the Lutheran Church. Frankly, if you go beyond that, even a long history in the, in the church period of seeking unity even not only in theology, not in the bare minimums of the gospel and sacraments, but in the maximums of liturgical expression. Why? Precisely because that's what serves the mission. Yeah. So we're finding in this very moment, while the church is collapsing and we want to do our outreach, we've so thoroughly divided ourselves, we're in we're incapable of it. So there's many, many reforms that the church needs to do in the coming years, decades in order to equip ourselves with a more faithful understanding, a more faithful perspective that's going to result in more efficient ministry and outreach. And then, of course, we, we plant and, and water, but it's, it's God who gives the growth, or not, or not. That's his business, and that's where I think we all need a great deal of collective humility, too. The church isn't declining numerically so much because you're doing it wrong. You need to change this. You need to, you know, and I mean, there's, there's this, there's actually this pride, like, with inherent within that of, hey, we're the answer to these problems. If we just figure out the right strategy, method, um, way of doing things, technique, but there, that's all pride. That means the solution is within us. What if we humble ourselves, seek to be unified, in the bond of peace and the spirit of unity and Christian fellowship and love. And, and, and we humble ourselves before the Lord and we say, we're going to go, we're going to go plant. We're going to go water. Whether God grows the church or shrinks the church is no business of ours because we're his servants. He's the master. He grows the church where he wants to grow it. He declines the church where he wants to decline it. He calls us not to grow the church unto death, but to be faithful unto death. He's going to handle the rest. So, sorry to go on my soapbox here, but um, these are but these are big issues, and and I think issues that um, you know I, I'm encouraged that many of the particularly the younger pastors, um, as, and especially those coming out of seminary, they're great allies in this regard because. We all see what's wrong. We see the, the need to change <clears throat> and the need to press forward for the sake of sharing the, the light of Christ. All right. Um, shall we go on a little further? We're, uh, we're, we're, at, we're at the end here. Um, did, I finish, did I finish page 71 or do we have just a little bit further to go? All right. Um, so let's just pick up at the paragraph on 71 that begins um, at the precise moment. And we'll just close out the chapter for today. We'll start chapter 4 next week. At the precise moment, the fullness of God's wrath is revealed. The fullness of his love also shines forth. This is one of the most beautiful and profound mysteries of the cross. It shows God's wrath, but at the same time, it shows his mercy. On the cross, the depth of your sin is matched with the height of his love.
on the cross, your wickedness is revealed and forgiven. American Christianity is weak on sin, which means it is weak on God's deserved wrath. That's the preaching of hell we were talking about, which means at last it is weak on the cross. In the death of Jesus, we see hell on earth, and we see that we are not in it. We see God's wrath, and we are not suffering it. We see the profound depths of God's anger filled up with the mountain of his compassion. In his mercy, God has not revealed the fullness of his wrath without also revealing the abundance of his grace. Earlier in this chapter, I quoted, uh, Wolfmuller quoted, Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. In that immediate context, it was, it was in a law context. He's there suffering what we have deserved. But in light of these last words, in light of this gospel context, you can see then the gospel aspect of these words. He was pierced for our transgressions. He willingly, because of his great love, chose this, chose to bear our sins, to be our Savior, to be pierced for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities, that we might not suffer the eternal consequences of that sin. Praise be to God and his Son, Jesus, our Savior. All right, next week, chapter 4, the Lord be with you.